Today we come to the third part of our focus on renewal in our summer of renewal. Uh, the renewal of self, the renewal of relationships, these are themes that we've talked about since the beginning of June. In the renewal of relationships, we've talked about the sacred rhythms of discernment and Sabbath and how those contribute to who we are as people and how we engage one another in relationships. We have other things that relate to that coming up. It's already been mentioned, uh, the board game night this Wednesday. And as Travis mentioned, I will say again, next Saturday, the Enneagram and Relationships. And if you are interested in coming uh, and you missed in June, please, you can see me today or you can email me. Um, but generally, I will try and catch you up to speed enough that it will be a beneficial time for you if you're interested in that. And we are very intentional to choose that because of what it will contribute to the relationships within the context of this congregation. But now we're going to talk about, for the next three weeks, the renewal of community. And, and this actually is not the community within CCC. That focus of the renewal of community within CCC was, was focused on the renewal of relationships within the congregation. But as... Nate and I talked about this in preparation, and with the blessing of the renewal team as well as the um, elders, we made an intentional choice to talk about this being the renewal of the community of where you are and where this church is. Fishers, Hamilton County, Greater Indianapolis. It's the renewal of the community in which you live and work and play and find yourself in your neighborhoods. And specifically, we made an intentional decision to focus that renewal of community through the lens of how we understand our faith's integration into the workplace. A particularly relevant topic for me personally, because of God's leading through a second wave of discernment that my wife and I walked through a year ago. So three weeks ago, when we were t teaching, when I was teaching on discernment, I shared how God led us to an answer about London and about how God gave us that answer in a very particular way, and it was a, a certain moment, and I can tell you the date and the time and the place I was and all of that. I mentioned then that I would come back and share the story of discernment for where God led us once we knew that London was not our path. And if you weren't with us, I'll simply say I was on staff at a church, asked through a reorganization of uh, the staff to go to London to pastor a church plant or to no longer have a job at the church where I've been on staff for 14 years. And God led us very clearly after our discernment process to know that we were not to go to London, but that meant I didn't have a job after a few months. And so what was next became the question. And so in that experience with London, you may remember, there was a sense that God kind of dropped the answer into our lap very clearly, like, this is what you're supposed to do. So wouldn't it be great if God did that all the time with things that we discern? Not so much with this one. Uh, this one became more like, as one church father calls it, a drop of water on a sponge that just gently and slowly moves to saturate the sponge in a way that you start to realize, oh, I think this is what you're saying, God. And so for us in that discernment process of what we are doing now and what I am doing now in my work, for, for my work, uh, began in February with a random email from a new friend who told me about a potential job in Raleigh, North Carolina, a job to executive, be the executive director of a organization there in Raleigh that works with young adults to help them focus on the integration of faith into their workplace. And I found it very intriguing. I actually found it a little more intriguing than the lead pastor job I was interviewing for at that exact same time. 
and that was curious to me. I'm actually a little more interested in this job in Raleigh and have more emotional draw to that than in this lead pastor role. Well, that's not what I would have expected. So paying attention. You heard me talk about a couple weeks ago, non-judgmental observation. Uh, that doesn't answer the question for us, but it does say, why do I feel pulled here but not as pulled here, the stronger here? Started thinking through this role that was there in Raleigh and uh, saw a lot of connections to who I had been in my ministry position, things I had done for years in investing in particularly the millennial generation, uh, young adults over lots of years. Eventually ended up in an interview process with Raleigh. Eventually watched doors close uh, for church roles that I was interested in or thought I might pursue. Eventually interviewed all day in Raleigh. And uh, the irony for us about Raleigh was that when Betsy and I, my wife and I, had made a list of places we would want to live other than Indianapolis, Raleigh was number one on the list before we ever got this job posting. Because our uh, closest friends from our days in Charlotte connection of families, lives in Raleigh, and we loved the idea of being in North Carolina again, beach, mountains, sunshine, and things I've mentioned before that I like, uh, and as well as friendship. So it was curious to us that this was evolving. In the process of that, a dear friend of mine here said to me, I know what you're looking at in Raleigh. I know what that fellows program is. You and I have talked about it. We don't have that in Indianapolis. Will you pray about whether God has that for you to start here in Indy. Even if Raleigh offers you the job, will you first pray about whether you're supposed to do this in Indy? So in the process of interviewing with Raleigh, it became clear that they uh, told me clearly that they had not chosen me to take over that role. I was one of two and was not chosen for the role. But the journey of walking through that interview process with Raleigh and going down there for a day opened my eyes to this small world, but ever-growing world, of the faith and work movement across our country. We actually have a pretty robust faith and work movement already in the area of Indianapolis. You may know some of these ministries like Stone Table and Truth at Work and Edge Mentoring and others. Ministries and organizations that are focused, faith-based, Christ-centered to then help people understand that where you spend the bulk of your time, the workplace, your faith should completely be involved in. It's not Sunday and then six days a week compartmentalization, but it's everything for you and what you do to recognize that Christ cares about that. And so in that process, we created an organization called Circle City Fellows and are in the process right now literally of launching that with our first class of 14 fellows on August 29th. And this was something that God just led us towards. When Raleigh came back as a no, it turned our focus for the month of May for us to think through, okay, indeed, are we going to start this? And then we lived as if for the month of June. When I talked about that a couple weeks ago, you live as if, and things just continued to come. We did a clearness committee, which is something else I mentioned a few weeks ago. That's a Quaker tradition of tight-knit, close community around you who ask you very important questions. We did that, and that was affirming to us. And so by the end of July, August 2018, this is what we knew we were going to pursue. For me to start this organization, my friend is the, now the chairman of the board. He's walked alongside me. We have nine others on the board, and it's been a year of watching God provide month by month for us, as he still needs to do uh, in an organization where you're fundraising, as well as then seeing that this was what God has for us. Not dropping it in our lap with a, a, a day and a time and a moment, but putting it in our lap over time, as I say, like a drop of water on a sponge gently moving. That was our journey to this vision and this mission. 
And we are an organization then that wants people to understand that God has a missional call on their life, the center circle on this image. And that missional call is part of God's story. And it then affects your work, who you are in your workplace, in your neighborhood, where you volunteer. If you're someone now who is done with work, you are retired, you've put that in the past of getting paid for what you do, you still have your work that God has called you to do. And what it is, whether volunteering or in your neighborhood community or even within this church, it's connected to God's story and you're engaging that. And it is for then the flourishing of Indianapolis, greater Indianapolis, which Fishers obviously is a part of. And for us, then, our vision is to empower young adults to see how their story fits within God's story, God's mission, through their workplace, through where they spend the bulk of that time, for the sake of the flourishing of greater Indianapolis. So over the next three weeks, with Nate's blessing, I will say that, we are going to focus on this idea of why our work matters. And it very well may be, I don't know if he has, that Nate has preached on this in the past. But I will tell you, the majority of churches don't preach about faith and work. I was a pastor, young adults pastor for 11 years. I never preached a sermon series to my young adults. I never preached one message on faith and work to college students and young adults who were starting in the workplace. To my shame. In the 14 years I was on staff at this church, we never preached a sermon on faith and work. 14 years. We don't talk about it. We apply it. We preach on something and we say this could apply in your workplace, but we don't help people to understand your faith is not to be in the workplace where your work is an instrument. We can have this idea that simply I work, but work is for me to go to so that I can evangelize, so people will get saved. Well, that may be something God has for you to do in your workplace, but that's using your work as an instrument. Our work is intrinsic to God's story and God's mission. The vast majority of people believe that what a pastor does on Sundays is more important than their job through the week. But that is not true in God's eyes. In God's eyes, when your work is aligned with God's mission, your work is just as meaningful as what a pastor does or a church staff member does in a church context. Just as meaningful. There's a young lady who uh, does my hair and my wife's hair. Started out being, we exchanged her cutting my hair for premarital counseling. Very good deal, barter system. And I've said to her, you get opportunity to say things to men and women who sit in this chair that I as a pastor never would have gotten to say. Why? Because they will tell you things through the mirror because they don't have to look at you eye in the eye, eye to eye, that they would never tell me in a pastoral office. Your work is ministry if you see it that way if you understand it that way. So we are going to focus in on that idea for the next three weeks. And it begins with understanding how we fit into God's story, the story of God and God's mission in the world. What planted the seeds of this desire for me to do this work with Circle City Fellows? A big part of it was this refreshed understanding for me of God's missional story, a renewed perspective for me in the early 2000s on what is God's purpose in the world. How God's story implicates us and how we're meant to find our place in that story. We have a part to play in God's missional story. And by the word missional, all I mean is the adjectival form of God's mission. That God has a story about God's mission. That we are meant to contribute a verse. 
Uh, we took from the library and unfortunately didn't watch it before it went back to the library, the classic Robin Williams movie, Dead Poet Society. It's time to introduce our boys to Dead Poet Society. Absolutely. And in that, Robin Williams, he quotes Walt Whitman with this idea of contributing a verse to life. That God's desire all along in God's passionate love was and is to have God's creation, us, participate in God's mission. And that, in a way, is like a crazy notion, right? Like, that's one of those things that feels sometimes very surreal to me. It doesn't take much to remind us how small we are in the scope of the world, right? Like, if you start thinking about time and infinity time, right, that, that we're, we're a blip. The smallness that can lead to questions about why do we exist? Who are we? What are we on earth for? Like, why am I even here? Like, I don't know. I, I sometimes have those questions just sitting back. What was today about? Did it really make a difference? For example, if you ever look at your Google Earth app, and you ever go to Google Earth, and, and you, you open it, and you, then you type in where you want to look at, and it's out here on Earth, and then you type in the place, and you hit the button for it to start, and it literally zooms in all the way to your address. If you've never done that, and you want to feel small, go ahead and do that. It just shrinks the world for you down to your little area, but because it literally starts with the globe of the Earth as if you're out in space, it just reminds you, oh my goodness, I'm like a speck on earth. Let alone the galaxies, right? That we're in the Milky Way, but there's the other galaxies that are out there. 7.25 billion people located on this little earth, let alone all the people that have lived in history. What difference do I make? What does it matter what I do, who I am? What could I contribute? On the more sobering side, events like last weekend, when tragedy strikes, they get us asking existential questions like this, don't they? Just as Google Earth makes me think of my place in space in the scope of the universe, tragedies like last week that result in loss of life make me think of the smallness of my space in time. What is my place in time? When I hear of my friends who have parents who are battling different forms of sickness and disease, be it cancer or heart problems, it puts death at the door and reminds us of our smallness in place of time. So why does my story matter? If we're to seize the day, if we're to contribute a verse, as Walt Women suggests, but we're so small, what could we be part of that would bring value to our existence? What story could possibly we be part of so as to warrant our participation or even need our contribution? And the reality is God's missional story is the story that brings value for our existence. It tells us what we are here for. It is a story so compelling that though we might feel small, our life does matter because we do get to contribute a verse. We are called to seize the day in front of us for the sake of God's kingdom purposes. We are meant to write a paragraph that pushes the story along towards its fulfillment. God's missional story is the compelling answer to who we are, why we are here, and why our stories matter. And so I want to walk through that missional story again for us to be considering how first and foremost we have a call to be part of that story that will get played out in the workplace for the sake of the community in which we live, Fishers, Greater Indianapolis, so that we can consider how we are implicated to play our part in this story. 
And to do so, I want to look at this image that I've show, showed previously. We talked about this image briefly when I preached on Lectio Divina as a, an image of understanding the story of God. It's a simple set of symbols that help us to remember, and even share if we want to, the story of God and the story of God's mission in the world. And so we're going to walk through this. We're going to be in a number of different passages of Scripture. And so actually today we're going to do most of that Scripture on the screen instead of me having you flip all the way through because there's going to be so many of them. But this is meant to remind us that this is God's story that we are part of and that there is a place on that picture, that symbol, that we fit into. There's a spot for us. And so we begin at the beginning Kind of. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Chapter 1 of the story, creation. Why did God create? Well, you could argue that God created for the fun of it. God existing, being in a space and place where God just simply wanted to have more creation. But I believe there's a deeper reason that lies one step before chapter 1, whether you call it the preface, the introduction, or the prologue. And that lies in the very nature of God as Trinity. God created, I believe, because of God's love. Love is what God has been doing and what God has, will be doing outside of time and creation for infinity past and into eternity future. What do I mean by that? Why, why is God and Trinity being triune, the creator? Well, we believe that God is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three, one. It's what we call the Trinity. But what does it mean for God to be Trinity? Why is it significant to our story? In simple explanation for now, it's our way of saying that God is and always has been again in, in eternal relationship with God's self. In other words, God has been in an eternal relationship of the past within God's self, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship with one another. In relationship with one another of what kind? In a relationship of giving, receiving, and sharing of love. We often represent this, as I've just done with my hands, in a sense of a triangle. And if we were to draw it, we could draw it with three ideas of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with arrows moving all around. That what God has been, is, and will be doing for eternity future is loving God's self. That what it means to be Trinity is that the essence of God is the giving and receiving and sharing of love. And so God's mission then, if you will, is love. To love within the Godhead. Love is what God does. That is God's purpose. And ultimately and most prominently, this is the simplest way of speaking of God's mission still to this day. God loves. So therefore, when I think about creation, and I'm thinking about this first chapter of the story, God's act to extend love beyond the Godhead is why God created God is giving and receiving, sharing love within the Godhead, and God then decides to create a world to have more giving, receiving, and sharing of love. Why were you and I created? Because of love. That is what I believe the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us. That's what I believe the story of God teaches us. 
Not only for us to give and receive and share love with God, but then to reflect that image of love as we share love between the created world and God, between created beings and God, within the created beings, us loving one another in humanity, and then love between created beings and us loving the created world. Creation was an act of love. And then that mission of giving and receiving and sharing love was messed up with what we commonly call the fall. But you'll notice I've chosen a different word here for this chapter, the word rebellion. I think the word fall in some ways is a bit too passive. It's as if it just kind of happened. And there's elements of that there. You know, you see in the story this idea that, that Eve takes the fruit and she turns to give it to Adam. And so clearly when the serpent in the story approaches Eve, Adam seems to have been there and said nothing to like talk about why we shouldn't eat that fruit, whatever that fruit was. Rebellion, though, is what really happened. There was an active choice to push back against God and away from the God of love. And this chapter is not just Genesis 3, although it kicks it off. The storyline is really what we see throughout Genesis 3 through 11. In Genesis 3, with Eve and Adam's choice to eat the fruit, there brings curses from God unto the human race because of the individual rebellion that's there, and banishment from the garden. They lose their unhindered communion with God that they enjoyed in the garden. Genesis 3, 22 to 23. And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The rebellion led to them being separated from God. But the corporate rebellion is something we see beyond Genesis 3. That was the sense of individual rebellion, even Adam with God. Now we go to Genesis 6, and we hear it in the Noah story. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. Every inclination, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. Corporate rebellion not just individuals. Uh, Genesis 11 with the story of the Tower of Babel seals the deal in this section of rebellion. We're going to make our way to the gods. Humanity's pride to make a name for themselves in prominence. So chapter 1, creation. Chapter 2 of the story, rebellion. So what does God do? Chapter 3, God calls a people to belong to himself to bless the world. Genesis 12, the call of Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. I'm not sure that we can overemphasize the importance of this passage in the story of God. It sets up the vision of God's mission for the rest of the storyline of Scripture. And it's key to our understanding of how our faith plays out in the workplace. God and his love has always been a missionary God. And in calling a people to belong to him, God was seeking to accomplish his purposes for the world. God called Abram in order to bless him and his family so that they might be a blessing to the nations. 
And we see God's pursuit of this blessing continued through the line of Jacob to God then selecting his very own people to come and represent him. In Exodus chapter 6, God says this to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This deliverance was purposed for the story of God and God's mission to continue. In the ancient Near East, gods were attached to land. What we see here in Exodus is a change with Yahweh from all the other gods. So in other words, if you lived in Egypt, you were following, among others, Ra, the sun god. Which, by the way, I totally get why people would worship the sun. If I didn't worship Yahweh, I would probably worship the sun. Because I love sunshine, as I've told you before. So I get that. But when you left Egypt and went to another land, you took on their gods. Ra was no longer your god. Gods did not cross the line. You live in Indiana, you got certain gods. You cross the border into Illinois, you got a new god. If you cross the border into Illinois for work because you live in northwest corner of Indiana and you go to Chicago, you got to worship a different god when your workplace, you got to worship back your own god when you get back home to Indiana. That's the idea of the gods of the ancient Near East. What does God do here? God is not attached to land. What is God attached to? People. You are in Egypt. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to walk you through, we know the story, some of us, maybe all of us, right? Through the wilderness. I'm going to give you a land, but I'm going with you the whole time. My presence is never going to leave you. It's in fact later in Exodus why when God is so angry, he threatens to remove his presence. Moses says, if your presence doesn't go, don't send us up out of here because we have to have you. This is a radical change of God from all the other gods. It's like Sesame Street theology, right? Which one of these is not like the other? Do they still do that in Sesame Street? Does Sesame Street still exist? My, my kids don't. You know, we're beyond that, and we never really went into it. It's like Sesame Street theology. Which one is not like the other? Yahweh is not like any other God, and we see it here in Exodus. God calls people to himself. Why? To demonstrate the difference of who God is. Theologian Chris Wright says it this way. God redeemed the whole Israelite nation out of Egypt, and God did this with purpose. Israel was redeemed to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham that all nations on earth, all nations on earth would find blessing through his descendants. Israel was redeemed for a reason. Israel was delivered to demonstrate the difference of who God is. And this becomes important for us on the backside of Jesus. They were distinguishing themselves that Yahweh was the one true God. They demonstrated this difference through their new vocation as seen through living according to the law, God's presence with them, and ultimately then through the promised land. And the rest of the narrative of the Old Testament in this third chapter, the called people of God, the rest of the narrative of the Old Testament, Exodus through Judges, Samuel, Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, with commentary by the poets and the prophets, describes the challenge for Israel to live this identity. 
the challenge they had to be the called people of God. They kept getting drawn towards idols, and God would call them back. No, 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 no. You are blessed to be a blessing to the nations. God's saying, like, I can't bless the nations in the way I want to. I can't draw them to me if you don't represent me. That's what God was saying to them over and over. You're delivered to demonstrate the difference. And in that challenge, the narrative and commentary shows us how much they struggled. Struggled to follow through and push back rebellion and be obedient. And unfortunately, this struggle and this rebellion led them into sin that was judged by God and put them into exile. It's not a narrative, thankfully, without hope. Though rebellious and sinful, they were still called the people of God, and so they still had a mission to fulfill. And there was always a remnant that was seeking to fulfill that. We're going to talk about one of those people next week as we talk about Daniel. But out of that Old Testament storyline that ends with Israel beginning to return from exile, they were waiting for the restoration of their nation, waiting for their Messiah. And out of that story enters Jesus, God incarnate, God in human form, God being made known in the Son of God coming to earth. Of all things that we can say about Jesus, we first must say that his coming was part of this story. Have you ever stepped back with Jesus and just wondered, like, hey, God, like, um, could you not have dropped him in, you know, Sunday before the cross? He wouldn't have had to do all these other things in teaching. You just drop Jesus in, like, around the Passover season, and then he gets killed. Any of you Lord of the Rings fans, have you ever seen those funny videos on YouTube about the eagles, where there's this whole thing of, like, Frodo goes on this whole huge journey to get rid of the ring, and there's these funny videos that just say, well, what if the eagles had just picked Frodo up in uh, the Shire and just flown him all the way into Mordor, and then he just dropped the ring in? Like, the movies would have been ruined, the story would have been done, but it would have, like, you know, made things fixed like that, like just in an instant. And God didn't do that with Jesus. He didn't just drop him in. He made Jesus part of the story by living and breathing as a human being. There's so much to say about that that I won't regarding that example and what that means for us in our life. That Jesus was meant to be the part of God's mission of love in the story. And Jesus' entrance was God's unexpected answer to Israel's wait. Not only for a Messiah, but for their restoration. Now, they thought the Messiah was going to restore them to the glory of being the top nation. But God's vision of it was a restoration to the world as it was supposed to be. God's vision was bigger than Israel's vision. Israel's vision was, hey, we're going to be the best. God's vision was, hey, how about we redeem and reconcile and restore the whole world? It was never for them just to be as they were in the Old Testament. It was for even more. And so Jesus and his entrance is not just for Israel, but for Jew and Gentile and the whole creation, the whole created order. And we see this kingdom reality in Jesus' choice of what he preached in his first sermon. So this is the first public speaking of Jesus, and here's what he chooses to read in the synagogue. Unrolling the scroll of Isaiah, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We see this kingdom reality in his first public proclamation when he began to call his disciples when he said in Mark 1, 
Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. And the phrase come near is a spatial term in Greek. It's not a temporal term about time. It's the kingdom of God as in Jesus, me, I'm walking up. I am now near you, so the kingdom of God is near. It is in this place. We recognize it in his teachings highlighted by the Sermon on the Mount, but also his parables and what we see in his actions like healings and driving out demons. We ultimately realize that the entrance of Jesus as king and his kingdom's triumph in his sacrificial death, life-giving resurrection, and empowering ascension was all about propelling the story of God's mission forward. Tied back to Abraham, blessed to be a blessing to the nations. Israel was waiting for restoration come, to come from their Messiah, but God went beyond their expectations, choosing in Jesus to come himself, not only for Israel, but to inaugurate a whole restoration project of the whole of creation, for it to be as it was from the beginning, to inaugurate a restoration project of putting the world to rights, that includes the reconciliation of humans to God and with one another and with the created order. That's why what Jesus spoke out of Luke 4 is so poignant and powerful. The good news that Jesus wanted to proclaim was so holistic. It was not simply about individuals being separated from God, being reconciled to God. It was so much more than that even. It was that too. The restoration and the kingdom of God coming for individuals but also through humanity for the reconciliation and restoration of the whole world, as Colossians 1 casts vision for. To put the world to rights, repairing separation from God, brokenness and pain in our bodies, minds, and spirits, healing isolationism, ending discrimination, racism, war, and genocide, bringing the decay of the creation to an end, and stopping injustice of all kinds through the oppressive systems of the world. This was God's kingdom vision through Jesus. This was God's kingdom vision from the very start of God being triune. What does it mean to love? It means to put, in this mission, it means to now put love where love is not. And anytime we see the creation cared for, anytime we see justice, injustice stopped, anytime we break power of oppression, Anytime we stop racism and all the forms of hatred in our world, anytime we step in and end isolation for somebody, anytime we are used by God to see someone reconciled back to God, we are joining in the mission of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven in Jesus Christ. All of those that I named are part of God's mission and purpose in this world to bless, to be a blessing to the nations. That is God's call, and that is God's story, and that is God's invitation to us to contribute a verse. And so Jesus, having come, then leads us to chapter 5 to spread this good news by sending the people of God. At the time of Jesus' post-resurrection appearance, he spoke these words, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now receive my spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit upon you. In the Old Testament, God gathers the people to himself to represent him 
so that people know that Yahweh is the one true God and they would be drawn to God. In the New Testament, God sends the church, the people of God, out into the world with the Holy Spirit upon them to then take the vision of God's mission and purposes to the world and to live sent just as Jesus was sent. The commissioning of this word is fulfilled in the story of Acts 2 and the subsequent stories of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And with this empowering of the people of God, the church is sent on mission. Chris, write again. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. The church was made for mission. God's mission. The church is sent as Jesus was sent to proclaim in word and deed the full gospel of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ that touches every broken, unreconciled, unrestored place of the world. All parts of it, as Colossians 1 describes. It is not that the church has a mission for itself. God already has a mission. God has the people of God, now called the church in the New Testament era, to be the conduits of that mission, to live that mission. And this is why, as we'll talk more about next week, when you are in your workplace, you align your work with the mission of God, with the fullness of the gospel of the kingdom of God, of healing broken and unreconciled places, of leading to wholeness in the world. When your work aligns with that mission, it is ministry every bit as much as your pastor. Can I just say this, though? There are churches and sometimes pastors who don't even align their work in the church with God's mission. They don't. They use the church for something else, but it's not about God's mission. So one of the greatest things that we could do as the people of God is take off this elevated status of missionaries and pastors that we have created of a hierarchy of spirituality in the mission of God. I say that with all due respect to every missionary in the world to simply say that both sides of my family as parents, my mom and my dad, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, sacrificed tremendously to be missionaries in India, in China, and in Malaysia, and in Hong Kong. So missionaries are worthy of being honored for their sacrifice. But our problem in the church is we say, well, there's the missionaries, then there's the pastors, and then there's me. And you're the only one saying that, and we're the ones that are not saying it loud enough to say that's not the way it works in God's eyes. There's all of us, and everything that we do matters to God, and our call is to align it with God's mission, and in God's eyes, it's all equal. And so your work, being a project manager, owning a company, being the shift manager at Starbucks, being the custodian at the school, volunteering with friends in a nursing home where they may be losing some of their mental capacity quicker than you and you give you time there to serve, those are all just as much ministry when we see them aligned with the mission of God as God's call on our life. For God, there is no separation because the people of God have been sent. It's a mission whose culmination will one day come in the final chapter of the story that will be written by God when the new creation comes down. This kingdom coming will be the kingdom come, and the dream of God from the beginning of creation will finally be fulfilled. Revelation 21 and 22 give us this vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That phrase, passed away, does not mean poof, disappeared. 
That phrase actually means renewed from within. The new heavens and new earth will be renewed from within the existing heavens and earth. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Then the angel showed me in the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of this great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. In this passage of Revelation 22, do you hear the echoes of Genesis 3? Do you hear the echoes of Genesis 3? No longer any curse. The end of chapter, 20, chapter 3 of Genesis is God's curses. Curse on men, curse on women, curse on the creation. On each side of the river, the tree of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Where was the tree of life first seen for us? Genesis 3, in the garden. Genesis 2, even. No more pain, no more mourning, no more death, no more tears. Unhindered communion with God, as it was meant to be in the first place. This is the culmination of the story of God. God's creation, our rebellion, God's call of God's people, the sending of Jesus that leads to the sending of the people of God to the world, to the new creation. It will be done. What was supposed to be at the beginning, what was supposed to be here, will be here. This is what the whole story has been pointing to from the beginning, even Genesis and even the Trinity beforehand. Unhindered communion with God where we give and receive and share love with the triune God of love. But this is the end of the story that is not the end. It's actually the true beginning. The end of the story that isn't the end because it reminds us that, the vis that this vision matters for us in this day. The ending picture of Revelation is the culmination of God's kingdom. All of God's dreams and desires fulfilled. And Jesus again taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in the here and now, as it is and is going to be in the heavens. And so this is the story that you and I are implicated into, that we are drawn into. So our personal stories do matter. This is the story that is so compelling for you and me that as tiny and small as an insignificant we can feel in the timeline of history or in the space of this universe— our participation is necessary, it is vital, and it matters. It is the story that each of us as followers of Jesus must know because it is a compelling story, a compelling answer for who we are, <clears throat> why we are here, and why we matter. It is the story that leads to our understanding of what our hope-filled mission is all about. And it is the story we continue to write because we have a place in that story in that image on the screen. We're right there on the other side of that arrow after the word Acts and right before the word Revelation. You and I sit there. We are the ongoing sent people of God as, that are part of this story. 
this world as the place of God's kingdom in advance of God's culmination. The story that tells us that the principal theme throughout the scriptures is God's love, God's rescue, God's recreation, God's reconciliation, God's restoration. That what was intended in the beginning and what will be in the end is what is meant to be right now. That you and I are called to contribute a verse, to write a paragraph in the story of God's kingdom coming right now. That we are agents of God to make this happen. That, that we are sent as Jesus was sent into the world, empowered by his spirit, that the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ is expanded and extended throughout the world for the sake of all nations. Back to the image of Genesis 12. I am blessing you, people of God, to be a blessing to the nations, all nations, the whole of creation. God's missional story as the compelling answer to who we are, why we are here, and how our personal stories matter. The story within which our work, our job, where we spend the bulk of our time in the week, finds its place and gets its meaning and makes what we do, no matter what we do, ministry as much as anybody else that we think of as doing ministry. The compelling answer for who we are, what we are here for, and why your story matters. Will you contribute a verse what will your paragraph say? Father, we thank you for the invitation to be part of your mission, part of your purposes, part of putting love where love is not, of the extension of your kingdom in this world in the here and now. Thank you for extending your love to us, that you would create us out of love to give and receive and share love with you. It is a surreal, unbelievable thought when we step back. That the God of the universe who is so beyond our comprehension is so intimate and imminent and personal and close to us that we would actually matter as a person, as an individual. That you've given us identity with you, belonging with you, and purpose with you. And so we matter. And you've given us a job to do. So, Father, would you help each of us to understand the gift and the seriousness of being part of your mission? And would you help us know what it is for us to contribute that verse and paragraph? That we might even be possessing Christ as ours now, even as you, dear Christ, will be ours forevermore in Zion. That we will see that in the here and now, in anticipation of what it will be like when it's fully fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you, Father, for this invitation. In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.